This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. My name is Emma Humphreys and I'm delighted to welcome back Laura Bushaway of our real estate disputes team and Guy Featherston Hoare Casey of Falcon Chambers for this look ahead to what the property world can expect from Parliament and the courts during 2023. We're also joined this year by Taylor Briggs from Falcon Chambers, so welcome to you all. So without further ado, actually I'm going to start with a look back slightly, just because we're recording this podcast very shortly after the Supreme Court's decision in Sarah and Hussein Asset Holdings against Black's Outdoor Retail. So I thought actually we would start with that decision. Perhaps Laura, if I could call on your expertise, for those who haven't seen it or perhaps have forgotten the detail, it's been going through the courts for a while. Perhaps you wouldn't mind just summarising what the landlord and tenant here were actually arguing about. Yes, absolutely, um, Emma. Black's Outdoor, the tenant, had disputed the service charges for the years 2017 to 2018 and 2018 to 2019 in the region of £408,000. They argued that the service charges, which were claimed for works carried out by the landlord, were excessive and the works were necessary. Now, the lease contained a clause that the landlord should provide a certificate as to the amount of the total cost and the sum payable by the tenant, and that was to be conclusive, um, except where there was an, a mathematical error or fraud. The landlord argued that the, because the certificate was conclusive, Blacks couldn't challenge the service charges unless there had been error or fraud. But Blacks said that the certificate was conclusive as to the amount of the costs incurred by the landlord, but not as to the tenant's service charge liability. So the landlord issued proceedings, and in the Court of Appeal, the landlord successfully obtained summary judgment. However, the Supreme Court, by a majority of four to one, overturned the Court of Appeals decision, and it took the view that the clause in the lease was a pay now, argue later regime. So whilst blacks were required to pay the service charges, they could later challenge their liability, even with the certificate. Yeah, and and that actually seems a fairly common sense interpretation to me, but I'm sure landlords will be disappointed to see that the certifications they sometimes do may not be as conclusive, perhaps, as they previously thought. Um, Taylor, have you had any thoughts about this decision and its implications? Yes, as you say, I think it's it's a stark decision in that you can see that the Supreme Court, the majority at least, with Lord Briggs dissenting, they were really grappling between these two interpretations, both of which they regarded as unsatisfactory. You had the landlord um, arguing for a pay now, argue never interpretation, and the tenant arguing for an argue now, pay later interpretation. And as Laura just said, uh, the Supreme Court steered a middle course. I think the two main implications of this approach is likely to be an increase in litigation. There's two reasons for that, in my view. Um, The first is, as you say, the starkness of the choice and the fact that the Supreme Court, in steering that middle choice, that middle middle course, sorry, essentially opened up a, a larger range of arguments that are open to a tenant in that situation. So rather than the tenant being faced with a choice of arguing, for example, that there was a mathematical error, a manifest error or fraud, all of which impose quite a high hurdle. Um, And you're essentially looking at things that jump out to you from the face of the service charge demand. Instead, it opens the way for a tenant to argue, for example, that the works done fall outside the scope of the service charge machinery, and that they shouldn't have been incurred in the first place. And I think especially in the current climate and economy, we are likely to see that being litigated more frequently um, with tenants 
even if they have paid under protest, seeking to claw some of that back in subsequent proceedings. The second thing is that the majority in SARA were keen to emphasise that, as we know, uh, contractual interpretation is a contextual process that involves looking at the other clauses of the lease. And so there was a focus in the majority's judgment on the way in which the certification clause interacted with those other provisions in the lease. For example, there was provision in the lease that although the tenant was obliged to pay what was described as a fair and reasonable proportion of the total cost, if there were to be a dispute about what that proportion were, were um, that would be referred to expert determination. And the, the majority thought that in view of that and other clauses, it was unlikely that the landlord and tenant had intended this uncommercial interpretation that the landlord could essentially decide the service charge liability entirely. Um, and so I think that we are likely to see not only more, def more defences or more or arguments open to tenants, but also tenants faced with a similarly worded certification clause, but leases that provide otherwise that maybe don't have, say, that expert determination clause seeking to relitigate the issue, again, trying to claw back some service charge that's been paid on account. Okay, so let's stay with service charges. I'm aware there are a number of interesting cases due to be heard during the year ahead. Taylor, perhaps you wouldn't mind giving us a flavour of some of those cases and their potential importance. I mean, perhaps, again, we should look at a decision that's been made. Perhaps we should look at the latest 89 Holland Park case. Yes, thank you. So it's so we've obviously just had judgment relatively recently, um, Judge Cook's decision overturning the decision of first instance of the FTT. But obviously, this comes in a long line, as you just alluded to, decisions concerning this property and the neighbouring plot of land. Um, and so just by way of brief background, um, the background of the litigation stems from the plans of architect Sophie Hicks to construct an underground dwelling. Uh, with an illuminated glass cube above ground uh, on the plot adjacent to 89 Holland Park, and there are restrictive covenants in place. Um, the resident-owned freehold company had incurred legal costs and planning costs, totaling almost £3 million, and then had demanded those costs via the service charge machinery to its leaseholders. Uh, the freehold company had sought to do so via two sweeper clauses, which I won't go through in detail, but essentially provided for the freehold company to employ a variety of professional persons um, as may be necessary or desirable for the proper maintenance, safety and administration of the building, um, and also to do works, etc. Again, necessary, advisable for the proper maintenance, etc. of the building. Um, as I said just a moment ago, Judge Cook overturned the decision at first instance that the costs are recoverable via these provisions. And the practical significance of the decision, in my view, uh, relates to the interpretation of sweeper clauses more generally. We often see these in leases, and it's very common for them to be at the end of service charge machinery. Um, it's an interesting decision in that it grapples with the pre-Arnold and Britain case law, where there was effectively... Uh, dictated the effect that there needs to be uh, clearly spelt out in the lease if you want to recover an item. And then we have Arnold and Britain saying that there are no special rules of interpretation applying to service charge provisions. And Judge Cook grappled with that by concluding that um, those cases haven't been overturned or overruled, although there are no special rules of interpretation. A sweeper clause isn't something that expands 
what the what the landlord can do and can recover. Um, and it's important that they aren't construed as that. Um, we've got an appeal outstanding, and it'll be interesting to see what the Court of Appeal does with that decision. Um, but it's part of a long line, including decisions like Kent Square, as to the recoverability of legal costs under um, under service charge provisions. And it'll be interesting to see how that jurisprudence continues to develop in 2023. Yeah, they're under fire a bit, aren't they, service charge provisions? I feel like this is a, a perhaps a, a new and developing battleground, is it fair to say? <laughs> <laughs> Changing topic a bit, uh, although not massively. We have, of course, the question of arrears in general terms, not just service charges. And from what I'm seeing already uh, so far this year, there's going to be no let up, I think, in arrears cases. We have, of course, mostly moved on from pandemic arrears as such. But I wondered, perhaps it's worth us reflecting on some wider principles here. Now we've seen how little the Commercial Rent Coronavirus Act 2022 was was actually used. I mean, many of us at the time were saying that the act wasn't really needed, or at least it had come too late to be useful. Um, and and now we're getting to grips. Poor Laura, <laughs> in particular, um, with the Building Safety Act, which seems to have some spectacularly unwieldy processes. And we've got significant changes on the horizon for residential tenancies, which um, I know a number of people think uh, are going to make the lettings market even worse. I'm wondering to myself, did the recent examples of legislation that we've seen from the government which affect property interests perhaps show that the government doesn't really understand property and should maybe stick to sorting out the NHS dare I say um uh Laura do you want to start I, I think we'll get views for everyone on this one but um uh, you're the one having the headaches at the moment with the building safety act and it has been painful hasn't it going through the 200 odd pages or whatever it is there is a lot to uh, there's a lot to delve into in the Building Safety Act, and I think it's definitely true that the government's made some fairly seismic changes um, to aspects of the property industry over the last year. Um, the ones you've mentioned um, obviously spring to mind, together with the Leasehold Reform Ground Rent Act, um, which reduced the ground rent in the majority of new long residential leases to zero. We're likely to see a lot more change on that front in 2023, with potentially phase two of the government's proposals to reform leasehold and common hold. The government's already said it wants to make uh, premiums payable for lease extensions um, uh, less expensive, um, but there's a lot of detail there um, following the Law Commission's report in July 2020, which I think had over 300 separate recommendations. I think the government's also said it's going to look at the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954 for business lease renewals, which is not something I'm sure that the property industry is calling for to be examined, but um, others on this call may, may disagree with me on that. Um, and we've also got things like the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, um, which is currently before Parliament. And there's been a lot of publicity about that piece of legislation, because it's going to to give local authorities the power to serve notices to compel a rental auction where there's an empty commercial property. But actually, a closer look at the detail of that bill actually reveals that um, for an area to qualify, the local authority has to designate particular areas or high streets um, for that purpose. So it's not necessarily something that we're going to see um, on a wide spread 
widespread basis. So we'll have to see how the impact on landlords and tenants goes with that. So I think what we're going to see is limited parliamentary time, um, given other priorities such as cost of living. And it will just be interesting to see what the government is going to focus on, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Guy, any thoughts from your side on the way legislation has been lately and is heading? Well, I've got two thoughts. One about the Building Safety Act, which I think actually is a brilliant example of a much needed and pioneering piece of legislation, because the market wasn't helping to resolve this problem of unsafe buildings. You know, things were proceeding very, very slowly. And in the meantime, we had this stopgap provision of fire safety marshals and all the rest of it. And the market was just freezing because people couldn't sell their flats. And I think what... um, the Act does, and what Michael Gove did with his building safety pledge, was pretty good stuff, really. And we've already started seeing the first cases in the first tier tribunal, with one week for last about Sutton Court, with a huge sum of money ordered to be reimbursed by the landlord to the, the leaseholders who paid it, you know, 190000 Um, And I think we'll see a huge amount more of that. And really everybody in the market concerned with these buildings with grotty cladding need to be aware of the Act. It's a big piece of legislation with huge consequences. So that's one thing. I think that's good news. The other thing I think is just terrible, having lived through the bad old Rent Act days with rent control and then the Housing Act 88 coming in, which really was like a breath of fresh air and freed everything up and got the rental market moving. Now we're proposing to go backwards, and I'm just baffled by it. I know Scotland's leading the way on this, but there's a an application for JR just launched by a bunch of private landlords in Scotland, where there they're not only proposing enhanced security of tenure, but also rent control. So it'd be interesting to watch what goes on in Scotland. But the idea of bringing in uh, compulsory, as it were, security of tenure for private tenants in um, it, down in the south, uh, I think is batty for all the reasons that were given and accepted when the Housing Act 88 went through. It'll just jam up the market and there'll be fewer tenancies on, on offer as a result. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I was I was just like you when I saw the proposals. I thought, <laughs> what are we doing? We've been here um, and we're still indeed, you know, struggling with some of these tendencies which are still existing um, and, and causing real pain, actually. And talking of legislation, of course, we now have provisions within the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act 2022, that's a mouthful, which amend the Electronic Communications Code um, and the 1954 Act so that the potential disparity in rents between the two regimes should become a thing of the past, as well as some other adjustments. Guy, when we last spoke about this, the code, I know that you were hopeful that perhaps the areas of dispute might be reducing. Do you remain hopeful? You're always optimistic, I know. Um, But do you remain hopeful? Do you think these amendments uh, are going to help? No. Uh, Well, that's a bit unfair. I mean, yes and no. Um, It's extraordinary, I think, that we had cases in the Supreme Court led by Compton Beecham, with all these issues being thrashed out at the highest level. And then the Act followed that. And you would have thought that the draftsman of the Act would have settled down and thought, how can we fix the problems we've got? And in part, that's what they tried to do. But it's uh, interesting as much for what it doesn't say as for what it does. So it didn't reform the definition of occupier. 
It didn't go right through all the implications of the Supreme Court's decision. And it, that's really sad. There are a number of matters that have been left over and lots of litigation that could have been avoided if they'd only amended the occupier definition as we all thought they were going to. But on the other hand, it's gone ahead and introduced the code's valuation hypothesis into the 1954 Act. So that will at least have the benefit of equalizing Section 34 rents and code considerations. Other changes they've made are much more minor rights to access land, which seem pretty complex and unnecessary, really. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think it was, you know, that that clarification was necessary. But um, I think everything I've read so far about it is sort of saying, why didn't, why do we, need... <laughs> what about the occupier point? What about the occupier point? But yeah, they obviously decided against it. Really. Yeah, it is a chance miss, isn't it? And finally, I thought we might round off with our thoughts on any trends that we've seen so far during these early days of 2023 or think we're likely to see. Um, certainly for my part, we're still seeing a lot of retail tenants falling into arrears and or struggling to meet the repayment plans that they had put in place, no doubt due to the increased costs which those businesses are facing. And I'm wondering whether that will in, you know, in turn lead to increased forfeitures, um, but that remains to be seen, of course, depends on the market. Guy, what, what are you seeing across your desk? What are you expecting to see across your desk during this year? Well, huge amounts of restrictive covenants. You know, I can remember in the early years of practice, they were few and far between, and now they seem to be all over. And um, it's quite hard to read the upper tribunal, really, when you look at the decisions coming through. I think there are lots of really, really good points out there, which people who are hoping to modify a covenant really must hoist in. And in the end, I think it all comes down to getting a great uh, lawyer versed in the in the uh, highways and byways of restrictive covenant work, but also very, very good local surveyor who'll be able to say, yeah, I think that'll work. You know, that that's where these things normally fall down. There's not enough prep work on what your prospects are. Definitely true. And you're so right. Um, and I know we spoke a bit about this before, because I remember I do summaries of, of restrictive covenant cases for, for a website. And when I first started doing it, it was brilliant. Every month, a little trawl came through. There was nothing to write about. This is the easiest job in the world. And then and then it changed at a certain point. And there were kind of like two or three cases every month. Um, that's quite hard work. Um, so <laughs> it's definitely picked up. And I, I do feel, as you say, uh, I feel as if the tribunal has become perhaps a bit more commercial about these things, but it's quite hard to pin down a definite trend now and again there's a decision you don't expect isn't there taylor what about you what are you seeing across your desk what are you expecting to see in 2023 i would echo your comments about increased forfeitures something that i've been towards the end of last year and also beginning of this year so far been encountering is in the context of commercial premises um you know the landlord either peaceably re-entering or bringing forfeiture proceedings and being met with an argument by the tenant that it's still recovering from COVID um, and having to make the point repeatedly that, you know, the kind of the ship has sailed with regard to the 2022 Act. Um, but I think obviously going straight from the pandemic and the economic consequences of the lockdown restrictions into cost of living crisis, increasing costs, we are seeing an increase in that sort of thing. And the COVID arguments are still being put forward. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that continues to pan out. 
Yeah, it will, won't it? Actually, we're just planning a little trip up to Scotland and uh, I was looking at hotels and um, some of the hotels have just said, we're clo- you know, we're closing during the winter months, we can't afford to heat, can't afford to heat it, which was, you know, really quite shocking, actually, when you when you see that. And I know, you know, even in London, they're, you know, closed on Monday, Tuesdays, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're, they're obviously trying desperately to, to cut costs where they can and, you know, keep to the profitable days, aren't they? Laura, any thoughts from you about um, what we think we might see crossing the team's desks during the year ahead? I think I've got two uh, two thoughts. Um, the first is I just think we're likely to see more default in general um, as a result of, of all of the various kind of um, pressures, um, particularly. So as a result of that, we're likely to see more enforcement by landlords and parties to transactional documentation as well. Um, and I think flexibility is likely to be something that's um, important, particularly to tenants. So we might see the operation of more um, break clauses, um, The other thing that I think we're going to see is um, in April, we've got quite a big change um, coming, which is the minimum energy efficiency standards. And that's going to apply to all um, existing commercial leases um, from April 2023. And obviously the government really wants to ramp that up um, and um, increase the energy efficiency going forward. So I think we might see quite a lot around that as well this year. Yes, good point. Yes, indeed. Oh, goodness me, it's going to be a busy year, but I suppose better busy than bored. And you're right. Yes, breaks. Yes, I'm, I'm already seeing more of those. And I'm, I'm sure that will continue. Although may I take this opportunity to thank all of my clients for uh, not sending any break notice instructions on Christmas Eve or the 23rd of December, as it would have been this year. I am extraordinarily grateful. Um <laughs> For service in the BVI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's. I mean, that goes without saying, Guy. It's always somewhere weird. <laughs> it's never just in London. Uh, but yes, we were very grateful as a team that we were able to enjoy our Friday, the twenty third of December, and nobody had to get on a train and go somewhere remote, uh, or indeed a, a flight. Thank you very much uh, to all of you for your time today. Um, that's been a really fascinating review, actually, of what we're likely to see in the legal property world during the upcoming year. Uh, whilst we wait to see how the courts and Parliament deal with these various issues, I will just wish our listeners, on behalf of all of us here, a very happy and healthy 2023. And thank you for joining us. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 